We have noted in our study of Deuteronomy that really this book is a picture uh, of sermons, a, a kind of a, a bringing together of multiple sermons that Moses gives just as they're about to enter into the promised land. Sometimes Deuteronomy is pictured just kind of rehashing the law where that's not the case that Moses, after the law has been given, is now explaining the law to them and telling them everything they need to be doing. And tonight we're in, in Deuteronomy 26 and we have been... In the second sermon of Moses, since chapter 4, verse 44, and now he's finally winding down this sermon. So if you think there's long sermons, from chapter 4, verse 44, all the way into chapter 26, is one singular sermon that Moses has preached to the people there. And as he winds down this second set of sermons, and I think it is important for us to, to spend our time considering what does he then call for the people to do. We've noted as we've moved through the book of Deuteronomy that we see a number of laws being given. Chapter 5 was a declaration of the laws that were given at Sinai, and then a further expounding upon those laws, descriptions of what they were supposed to do in regards to God, how they were supposed to treat one another, how to live holy and righteous lives, how to love their neighbor as themselves. We've seen all of these things throughout this sermon. And now what is going to be kind of the grand finale as he now wants the people to listen to this this sermon and what are the responses that he wants them to have? And, And I will propose for you tonight that there are three primary reminders that he is going to call for them to keep as they enter the land, as he ends this second sermon and has given these laws three reminders for them about what they need to do, what they need to remember when they come into the land. In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 26, you'll notice that one of the big themes that comes out of this chapter is really a call for thankfulness. Three times in just the first three verses, you will notice a repetition where God says that he is going, they're going to come into the land that God is giving them as an inheritance and take possession of it and live it. Three times he says, the Lord's giving you this land. The Lord is going to give you this land. The Lord is going to give you this land. And then after telling them that God's going to give them this land, he says, you're going to enjoy the blessings of the land. You're going to enjoy the fruit and you're going to bring your first fruits to the priest in verse three. And then after they do that, you will notice in verse five what the people are supposed to do. Verse five, it says, and you shall make response you shall make a response before the Lord, your God. Here's what they're going to say. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, and the Lord, uh, and the God of our fathers, the Lord, heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror and signs with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land. 
a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me, and you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. So notice the the imagery that's given there. So every year when you're bringing in the first fruits and you bring in the priest, here's what I want you to say. Here's this whole little story about my father was an Aramean, so here's thinking about Jacob. And he went down into Egypt and then we were down there and we were oppressed and we were enslaved and it was bitter for us and then God through a mighty hand released us and brought us into this good land and that's why we have all these possessions and blessings and fruit that we have this day. Essentially, you declare God's story all the time. Every single time that you have these blessings and you're in the land, you keep recounting God's story. And then notice then verse 11. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. Now, here's what he says. After you bring in the first fruits and you recount the story, I just want you to rejoice in all the good that God has done for you. Every time this happens, you're in that land, you just rejoice again and again and recall and bless the name of God because of all the good He has done for you. Which will then then lead from verse 12 to verse 15. He says, after you then pay the tithes and you bring in these, these first fruits, what I want you to do is then declare your obedience. And so you see there in verses 12 through 14, a description of how they have done right before God. For example, in verse 13, you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house. And moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, according to all the commandment you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor I have forgotten them. So they're supposed to say every time, I have kept everything that you've said, Lord. That would have been interesting to say those things. I think that would have called your conscience into mind as you went, well, maybe there's a few things I didn't quite do very well right there, but pretty interesting. This was the intent of the law. God is going to bring you in the land and bless you so richly that it will cause you to obey. And you will then say before God, I have done all that you have asked for me to do in this declaration of obedience of verse 15. Look down on your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us as you swore to your fathers a land flowing with milk and honey. So declare the obedience before God because God has blessed you so much and then obey the Lord going forward. Verse 16, This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in His ways and keep His statutes and His commandments and His rules and you will obey His voice. So here is the people bringing in their end of the bargain. They're saying, God, you brought us into the land and you've blessed us. And we remember that we were nothing. How Jacob went down into Egypt and we were oppressed and God brought us up by a mighty hand. And we've enjoyed all of these blessings. And so because God, you are so good and you have richly blessed us, we are obeying the commands of the Lord. We will do all that you have said. And notice what you're seeing is the beginning of the ratification of this covenant relationship. The people are declaring their obedience. And notice what you have then God responding in verse 18. And the Lord has declared today 
that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all the nations that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. So you see the covenant terms. People say, you brought us in the land, we're going to obey. God says, you obey, you are my treasured possession and I will then bless you above all the other nations and I will make you holy to the Lord. This is what then chapter 26 is all about, is trying to get the people to see the need for thankfulness. See what God has done for you. And by seeing all that God has done, that you will rejoice in His goodness, it will generate obedience. It will cause you to do as He says. And as that causes you to do that, God is all the more going to bless you. And you will continue to be His prized possession. You will continue to be a holy people to the Lord. And you will be exalted above all the nations on the earth. So this is kind of the, the big picture of what God is, is, is doing here in trying to get Israel to understand exactly who they are and what they must do when they come into the land. The summary of that, I think, is is pretty simple and pretty important because well, the key message of what you see God doing here is He has always wanted His people to recognize the blessings that He has done for them. He has always wanted His people to look at all that He had accomplished, to thank Him for His goodness, to recognize all of the goodness, to recognize the transformation that has been accomplished. This is essentially supposed to be the disposition of the Christian life, or if we were under the Old Covenant, then a God-follower life, the Israelite life, is that we would always see what God has accomplished, always rejoice in the good that He has done, and see the transformation that has been accomplished in our lives because of that. That's what they are doing. That's why I love the rehearsing of that story. Because what are you essentially doing but saying, look how God took us from nothing and has done amazing things for us. And remember, we've seen throughout Deuteronomy and Numbers and Exodus, was this by their own might, by their own power, by their own nothing? They were just to see, look at what God has done. We were nothing. We were enslaved in Egypt. We were oppressed. And look at where God has brought us to at this point. See the transformation. And it makes you perhaps wonder why God would continue to beat this drum throughout Deuteronomy. And this goes all the way back to chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9. When you come into the land, don't think it's because of you or your righteousness or because you were a mighty nation constantly that they would depend upon the blessings of God and realize it is because of God's goodness. Why does God have to do that so much? I think the point's pretty clear because we too easily forget. Why does God have to spend the majority of the time of this sermon where we started with the law and then don't think it's you, and then the sermon now is ending with don't think it's you, but the blessings of God. Except the whole problem is that we so easily forget what God has done. Just like Israel, we get focused so much on the present circumstances that we forget all of the past provisions and all of the past deliverance that God has accomplished. And when we read that in the book of Numbers, as we, we saw some time back, Here they are, and they're in the wilderness, and God has already fed them many times up to this point. And then we come to a day where we have no food or no water, and what is the response? 
The response was not, well, we remember how last month God fed us and, and took care of us. No, it's sheer panic again, focusing on the present, causing us to forget the past of what God has done to help and to give provision and to take care of us. And I think if we were to actually do what that song says, count your many blessings, name them one by one, that you would find that to be terribly impossible. I was thinking about the words of that as I was preparing this sermon. I thought, I'm going to just give it a go. And I thought, there is absolutely no way to recall everything that God has done, not only just in my life, so more than 40 years of life, but then just historically the cross and what God has accomplished from the very beginning in creation. And never mind you, then your own personal blessings of wealth and health and family and things like that. And then all the spiritual blessings of what God has done in your life. How do you begin to number them all? And yet that's so important that we attempt to do that because what happens is when we forget everything that God has done in the past and focus on the present, that's when we really have the tendency to fail. As the warning that you see in Romans chapter 1, it's a point that Paul makes to the Ephesians as well, is that the darkened hearts and the foolish thinking all begins with failing to give thanks, failing to remember everything that God has done. And we so easily do that. And I think it is interesting that here is Moses as he makes this proclamation and he wants to make sure that they will not forget this. I mean, think about how many of the sacrifices and how many of the holidays, all of the various festival days that were given were all intended so that the people would never forget that they were enslaved in Egypt and how God brought them out by a mighty hand. You had annual sacrifices that did that. You had the weekly Sabbath that did that. You had all of the feast days were all tied somehow in some way to that event And now here, even the first fruits, and they come in with all of their fruits. They're supposed to go, we were a slave in Egypt and God brought us out by a mighty hand. Don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. Which really leads to what chapter 27 then is going to describe. Is how badly we need memorials. How badly as God's people, as human beings, we need to have memorials. So notice chapter 27 What Moses tells the people. Chapter 27, verse 1. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan into the land that the Lord your God has given you. Notice that repetition. The Lord of God has given you this land. You shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them. All the words of this law, when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. 
You shall wield no iron tool on them, and you shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings, and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. So when you come unto the land, it is absolutely important that you go to Mount Ebal, which we will find out later on is the, actually the mountain of curses. Remember, you have your two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Gerizim is the mountain of blessings. All the blessings would be shouted out from it. And Mount Ebal is the blessing of curses, where all the curses were shouted out on that. He says, now what I want you to do is when you get into the land, I want you to go up to Mount Ebal, the mountain of curses. And I want you to set up there these covenant stones, plaster them, and write on them all of the laws. Do you get the foreshadowing of that? This is Here are all of God's laws on top of the mountain of curses. It's almost like saying, uh, this is going to validate why all the curses are going to fall upon you. Because here's what the law said to do, and you didn't do them. You write all of those laws on there, but at the moment it is quite a positive because you might consider that this sounds an awful lot like what happened at Mount Sinai. You're going to go up on Mount Ebal and you're going to have the covenant stones and you're going to put them there on top of the mountain and you're going to have an altar there and you're going to offer it before God. You're going to have burnt offerings and peace offerings and there you're going to eat. If you remember back in Exodus 24, we have this amazing scene with Moses and the 70 men and they go up on Mount Sinai, they offer sacrifice, they eat and drink in the very presence of God. It's almost as if Mount Sinai has now moved to Mount Ebal and this will be the place of remembrance for them. That this will be the place where they will recall all of God's promises and all the law will be written there. And it will stand then as a monument and a memorial to the people regarding all of the covenant promises that God has made. And then once those stones are placed there, you will notice from verse 9, pretty much then to the end of the chapter, is a description of 12 curses. Just 12 curses for not keeping the covenant. And as you scan your eyes over the final verses of chapter 27, you will see some of these descriptions of curses for committing idolatry, for dishonoring your parents, moving the land boundaries, misleading the blind, perverting justice, committing sexual immorality, striking down your neighbor, bribing others to shed innocent blood. Verse 26 is really the great description of what the curses are ultimately all about when it says there, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people said, Amen. So here we're going to come into the land, we're going to put the stone up, and here then are all the curses. And the curses then are telling you, this is what's going to happen to you if you do not obey everything that God says. Ultimately, you need to do these things. And cursed is anyone who does not keep the covenant, and all the people are in agreement. And it is interesting that so much of these curses stand on a social level, because what you see happen is when the people of Israel stop honoring God, the society completely degenerates. Think about what happens that generation after Joshua. What you read about in the days of the judges is horrifying. The kinds of sins that are going on, especially when you get to the end, 
is absolutely unbelievable. There is bloodshed. There is horrifying events that are happening against one another. Why is God so concerned about keep my laws and keep my statutes? And there will be a curse upon you if you don't. Because only when God is honored can society be just and be compassionate. Only can there be righteousness. Only can there be justice. Only can there be fairness as if we are all honoring God. Which is why chapter 27 is all about declaring we need memorials. And Israel was given so many of them. As we mentioned, not only the sacrifices and the Sabbaths and the Day of Atonement and the various feast days that were given, they had all kinds of memorials. And then you can imagine, there on Mount Ebal, here are these plastered stones that have the law on them and declaring all of the curses. If they do not do everything that God says to do, there were memorials all over the place for them. And it's important that we recognize, even under the new covenant, God recognized we needed memorials. There are things that God has given to us that are intended to be these reminders, covenant reminders, about who we are and what God has done. The one that obviously jumps to mind is the Lord's Supper, of course, is a covenant reminder. The Lord Jesus has come to this earth and died for our sins. And we are remembering the sacrifice and the covenant that was established in in that. So clear, obvious memorial that is given to us on a weekly basis. Baptism is one of those covenant reminders as well. That's why the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 would say, Don't you know when you were baptized into Christ what that all meant? Don't you know that you were raised? with him to walk in newness of life don't you know that that means a whole new you is supposed to exist you are in covenant relationship and baptism symbolizes that covenant so many reminders that God gives even under the new covenant as pictures that we are supposed to look at as memorials of who we are and what we're supposed to be what God has accomplished and how that's supposed to change us which leads then Funneling all into chapter 28, this is kind of the grand idea of what those two chapters are awaiting, is in chapter 28, you now have the beginnings of the blessings and the curses. The blessings and the curses are now delineated. You'll notice in verse 1 of chapter 28, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all of His commandments that I command you today, The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Notice the expectation of complete loyalty to God. When you come unto the land, I want you to faithfully obey the voice of your God. And I want you to be careful to do all of the commandments that I'm giving you today. I want you to do everything that God has said. So there's no expectation of come in, you know, and you know, maybe if you get 51% of the laws right, that'll be okay. Here's Moses really reiterating to them and emphasizing to them, God wants covenant loyalty. God wants you to do everything of these laws. And you think about the laws have gone on from chapter 4, verse 44, all the way to this point. Here we are. And you say, now we're going to put all of that on stones and you're going to do all of these things. You're going to remember the law. God wants complete loyalty. And notice what will happen if they do. Verse 2. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of of the Lord your God. And then the listing of blessings move from verse 2 all the way through verse 14. And the imagery there is amazing. 
The imagery there, that word that says overtake you, is a word that would be used of like an army coming and catching up to you and overtaking you. It is a picture that God is saying, if you will obey the voice of God, if you will give Him your covenant loyalty, the blessings are going to catch up to you. They're going to come behind you and they're going to overtake you. Here's God making a promise. I'm going to overwhelm you with my blessings if you will be faithful to the covenant and give yourself completely and loyally to that covenant. It's a really great picture to think about God saying, you can't outrun my blessings. If you will be faithful to me, you can't outrun them. They're coming for you. They're going to overtake you and you're going to have to enjoy these blessings because I'm going to give them to you. And thus he begins to lay out all of the beautiful blessings that God has done. I think it's important in thinking about this. Obviously, God is not saying to them that they were going to deserve these blessings or earn these blessings. That would be contrary to the earlier part of the sermon. That's not the point. The point of what God, I believe, is communicating is obedience is always worth it. Obedience to the Lord your God is worth it. If you will give your life faithfully, loyally and devoted to the Lord your God, Your obedience is going to be worth it. You will be overwhelmed with the blessings of God. That's what he's telling Israel. You want to do this. I'm motivating you with the rewards that you come into the land and you will not be able to escape the blessings that are going to come upon you. By contrast, you will notice in verse 15, a very similar start. Verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So notice you have the picture in the reverse now. If you choose to not be faithful and loyal to the Lord your God, the curses are going to come. And just as the blessings would be unavoidable if you obey, the curses will be unavoidable if you disobey. You will be overwhelmed by the curses that are going to come upon you. And you will notice with me, if your Bible has headers in there, you will notice from verse 15 all the way to the end of the chapter, there's not a header. Because the whole rest of the chapter... Are curses. And in about in my Bible, how they're spaced out, it's about three times longer, the curses, than the blessings. 14 verses of blessings, and then from verse 15 all the way to verse 68, all curses. You ever thought about why that would have to be the case? I think one of the main reasons why is because we have the tendency to believe that our sin will not find us out and we will not have consequences for our decisions. And here is God going, let me just get very clear about how these curses will most certainly come upon you if you choose to disobey and not be faithful to the covenant that God has made with you. Throughout the description, you will see pictures of God having power over the weather, over life and death, the crops, the animals, sicknesses, other nations. All kinds of pictures are found throughout here. 
of the things that were going to happen. For example, like in verse 22, uh, it says there, the Lord will strike you with a wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, fiery heat and drought and with blight and mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish and the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth uh, under you shall be iron and the Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come upon you until you are destroyed. Here God says to Israel, here's one of the things you'll know about my curse. If there's a drought and it doesn't rain, that will tell you something, Israel. Please think about in the history of the life of Israel how often there were significant droughts, like in the days of Elijah. And it was a message. You are out of favor with God. You are out of covenant relationship with God. It was intended to tell Israel, you are doomed in what you are doing. It was a promise that God had made specifically to Israel and to that land that if they disobeyed, this was going to come upon them. From verse 27 to verse 35, you will notice that basically what God describes are the plagues of Egypt now coming back upon Israel for their disobedience. If you disobey, then what I did to Egypt is going to happen to you as well in verse 45 he says that the curses will come upon you pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed i'm going to make sure that judgment comes upon you if you disobey if you do not remain faithful to the covenant look at verse 47 though verse 47 we read because you did not serve the lord your god with joyfulness And gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The thing I want you to observe is the phrase, you didn't serve God in joyfulness and gladness of heart. I've emphasized to you throughout our study of these five books that God has always wanted the heart. And notice the condemnation. He says, even though I blessed you, I gave you an abundance of things. You didn't joyfully and enjoy desire to worship me and serve me. And because of that, the curses will come upon you until you are destroyed. That unfortunately, the very thing that God was using that the people were supposed to then rejoice and bless God for became the very Achilles heel. All the blessings, all the riches, all the wealth, all the fruit of the land, they were supposed to turn and joyfully worship God because of all that God had done. And it turned out that all the blessings and all the good that God had done caused them to turn their backs on God And simply enjoy all those blessings. And God says, don't do that or you're going to be destroyed in the process. I don't have time for the other details of this. If you've never read this chapter, let me just ask you to go do that. Because from verse 49 to verse 68, graphic, gruesome horrors of judgment are depicted as the curses. And what is... I guess not surprising are the details that are found from verse 49 to the end of the chapter historically happened twice to Israel. 586 B.C. when the Babylonians wiped them out, these things, these horrors that went upon Israel was exactly what God said would happen. 
And then it happened again in 70 AD when the Roman Empire came in and did the exact same thing and destroyed the nation. The same horrors and graphic descriptions all happened again. I think it's just so important to get the picture of what God is trying to get from this note. Now, from verses 58 to 68, one of the things you will notice is a little bit of a theme. And the theme is this. God is going to reverse the exodus. If you disobey, the exodus is going to be completely reversed. He describes throughout verses 58 through 68 how they're going to be taken off of the land and they're going to be enslaved. In verse 62, he says, whereas you were numerous as the stars of heaven, there's Abraham's promise. He then says, you shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. I'm going to reverse even the promise given to Abraham. That's no longer going to exist. In verse 65, you're going to have no rest, which is a reversal of the Sabbath promise of the rest that they would enjoy. A reversal of the land promise that they'd be able to rest in the land and their enemies would not touch them. Those promises are being reversed. In verse 68, he specifies, I will bring you back to Egypt in ships. Back to Egypt you will go. All of this is imagery of how God delivered you out by a mighty hand. He will send you right back into slavery and right back into Egypt. And you will miss out on all the promises of God if you choose to not be loyal. The big message, if the big message of the first 14 verses was is obedience is worth it. Then in this section, the message is disobedience is pain and suffering. It's the big message God is communicating. Obedience to God is worth it. The blessings will overtake you. But disobedience will be pain and suffering and the curses are going to overtake you. How did Israel do? Well, I believe they had the same human nature as us is the belief that God would not bring the curses upon them. We've studied enough of the prophets in the Sunday morning class to see what did the people go around saying? Those curses won't come upon us. We have the temple. Everything's going to be fine. Surely not what Jeremiah would say or Isaiah would say. Those things are not going to happen to us. That couldn't be the case. And what I want you to see is in Israel's disobedience. Let's like go back to the judges where they start completely falling apart and all the horrors of the days of the judges. So here we are standing in the ballpark frame of maybe 1200, 1100 BC. Six to 700 years go by before any of the consequences that we read about here actually happen. And then they come back into the land starting in 536 B.C. And we read like in Ezra and Nehemiah and Malachi and Haggai and Zechariah, the sinfulness of the people. And God did not strike them down the next day with these curses. But another 600 and some years go by. And then finally all of the details happen. One of the big messages is to see is just because disaster is delayed doesn't mean disaster is not coming. And don't think that your disobedience not being smacked that day for doing it doesn't mean that God is not going to respond. I want to conclude over in Luke with the last minute or two that I have. Go over to Luke chapter 6 because I want you to note something that sounds very similar to everything we just read. Luke chapter 6. 
We may have the tendency to just read the Old Covenant and read about Deuteronomy and go, well, that was bad for Israel and there's no, no message here for us. But look at what Jesus does in Luke 6, verse 20. In speaking of Jesus, it reads, He lifted up His eyes on His disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now. For you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Do you see the blessing and curses of the covenant as Jesus now speaks to his disciples? Here's the woes, curses. Here are the blessings. And I want us to see that we have the same picture given to us is that there are promises of long-term blessings and long-term curses that come from the covenant of Christ. And we live with both of those before our eyes. You see Jesus in verse 23 saying, your reward is great in heaven. Notice he doesn't say your reward's going to be great tomorrow if you will just be faithful to me and you'll just get all the blessings today. If you'll do... No, he, he speaks to the future. That it will be in time that these, these things will happen. In time there will be the consequences for disobedience. And in time there will be the rewards for obedience. And I think it is so interesting that this is what God puts before us. Here are the rewards for obedience. And it will be worth it. And here are the consequences, the curses for disobedience. And it is not worth it. It will be pain and suffering And what we have for us is the history of Israel as proof. God twice did it to Israel to show he does exactly as he says. The same kind of thing now stands for us in these promises that lay ahead, whether it be eternal life or eternal punishment. What God is looking for is what we've seen in these three chapters. We need to have thankful obedience that we would never forget everything that God has accomplished for us. And he desires for us to never forget, to enjoy the memorials that he has laid out for us so that we will never forget all that God has accomplished. How our baptism symbolizes that, how the Lord's Supper reminds us of it of a weekly basis, of all that God has promised, all that lies ahead of us. And God's call then that we will be covenantly loyal to him and covenantly faithful to him in every aspect. That that's sort of what our response is before God. We will do all these things that God has called us to do. And there is a great promise that's laid out. There are blessings that will come. If we will obey the voice of the Lord our God. And that those blessings would be worth it. And it is why you read the Apostle Paul saying that the difficulties of this life calling them light and momentary afflictions and these things do not begin to weigh against the future glories to be revealed it's amazing how paul in all of his difficulties and all of his suffering was able to say 
They're not even worth comparing what God has in store for his people. This is what God was doing to Israel. I want you to see all of the blessings that are in store for you. It's it's just not worth going another way. And that we would take the same message to us. Our disobedience is not worth it. But that we would obey the voice of the Lord our God and follow him in complete faithfulness and loyalty. We're going to sing this invitation song. And the words are, Lord, take control. That Sanford has taught us. The message is very simple. God wants your whole life. He wants your body. He wants your soul. He wants your spirit. He wants your heart. He wants everything that he has given to you. It is his desire for you to love him and serve him faithfully. And we help you do that. Won't you come as we stand and sing this song?